in the first chapter of Ecclesiastes, verses 1 through 11, Solomon says, all is vanity. The sun goes, comes up and the sun goes down. The wind blows one direction, then goes around and blows another direction. In verse 7, it says, the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea doesn't fill up. The water goes back to where it started to go down again. Here Solomon is telling us about the recycling of water. Some people today think we are running out of water. They don't seem to understand we have the same water we always had, and it's being recycled again and again. Solomon said there is nothing new under the sun. Life goes on. People don't remember the past, and those in the future won't remember what is today. What he says may be true for some people. They don't read history, and they don't see us having a future. <clears throat> Solomon said the, he applied his mind to examine and explore through wisdom all that is done under heaven. He said that God gave people the miserable task to keep them occupied. Was he talking about the miser miserable task of all that is done under heaven? Or was he talking about the miserable task of examining and exploring all that is done under heaven? It doesn't seem clear from the Christian Standard Translation of the Bible. In the King James, it seems more clear. I, I gave my heart to seek and search out by wisdom all things that are done under heaven. This sore travail has God given us has given to the sons of man to be exercised therewith. So David, <clears throat> so God gave us the task to keep us busy, according to Solomon. In verse 18, Solomon said, In much wisdom is much grief, and an increase in knowledge means an increase in sorrow. We know in this age that knowledge and wisdom are not the same thing, we know many things, and some of them are true. We have access to more knowledge than anyone in the world has ever had before. And many people share their wisdom or what they claim is wisdom. If you want to know about something, you can Google it. You might even get some useful information. If you want to know how to fix something, you can go to YouTube. I went to YouTube to refresh my memory on how to recharge my car's air conditioner because it had been decades since the last time I did it. So you can go online to supplement your memory. You can find a lot of trash on YouTube and fill your mind with that. If you don't have enough sinful thoughts, you can find all the decadence you want online. People who want to take to make bombs or join a jihadist group can go down that dark path in a few minutes on the computer. Solomon said an increase in knowledge is an increase in sorrow. It can be. If you let someone else decide what knowledge goes into your brain. Like, for example, our mass media, they can shape your thoughts. It is tempting to feed on the news. The news that is published is sometimes weird and spectacular and disturbing. That is why it makes the news. <clears throat> so Solomon dived right in and looked for ways to have pleasure in his day. And for most of the days of history, 
you had to be wealthy to go in whole hog for pleasure like he did. Most people were too busy trying to survive and provide for their families. Many people were just trying to avoid being killed by their enemies. Solomon had it made. He had peace and wealth and family, and the great intelligence needed to be able to manage all that. He had the time and money and security needed to make, to make time for pursuing pleasure. We have the time and money and resources to pursue pleasure. Many waste their lives doing that. Solomon pursued pleasure and found it wanting. Solomon did great things. He started with wealth and made it into great wealth. He built a temple for God. It was a great temple. Of course, we don't mean that he was a carpenter. He planned it and directed the work and provided the materials which his father David had accumulated. Solomon grew his wealth. He built a great palace for himself that was greater than the temple he built for God. Then he built places for his foreign-born wives to worship their foreign gods. Solomon had many wives and many monumental works and many chariots and horses. His wealth and possessions were, possessions were extravagant. Solomon came to see that it was all vanity, and we are only in the second chapter of Ecclesiastes. Solomon was wise, but he was not a prophet. He didn't know some things that we know about God. His father David believed in life after death. When Bathsheba's firstborn son died as a baby, David said, he can't come back to me, but I will go to him. He knew he would see that child in heaven. It looks like Solomon thought that life on this earth and the years allowed to live before death was all that there was. Yet he believed in God. He was wise with the wisdom given to him by God. But as he got older, he didn't act wisely because he strayed from God. In acting unwisely, he grew less wise over time. The older he got, the less wise he became about spiritual things, or so it seems. It may be that he just compartmentalized in his mind. He put the things of God in one compartment. He put things that were against God in another compartment, guarding them jealously. Ecclesiastes is not all doom and gloom. Other parts of Ecclesiastes reveal the wisdom of Solomon. I really like the third chapter of Ecclesiastes. Pete Seeger wrote a song which was mostly words from the third chapter of Ecclesiastes back about 1950. I thought I remembered it as a Simon and Garfunkel song. Later, the birds had a hit singing the song. And every season, turn, turn, turn. I got all that info from Google, so it must be true. In verse 21, Solomon thinks about the possibility of the spirit of man, that the spirit of man goes up while the spirit of the beast goes down to the earth. In the last two verses of chapter 12, Solomon says, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God. Keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil.
In the book of Daniel, we read about some foreign kings. King Nebuchadnezzar was a mighty king, the king of Babylon. He had defeated the last of the Judean kings. Their time was done, and now it was time for the Babylonians to take charge. Years before, when Judea and Israel were one kingdom, King Saul had ruled God's people for 40 years. But King Saul served himself instead of serving God. After he died, King David ruled God's people for 40 years. God said that David was a man after God's own heart. <clears throat> David served God most of the time. And when he got old, he appointed his son Solomon to rule God's people. Solomon was a wise and powerful king until he turned from God. He ruled God's people for 40 years. When he died, his son Rehoboam was not so wise. The kingdom was split in two. Rehoboam got the southern kingdom, which was smaller. Jeroboam took the larger northern kingdom. Even so, God blessed the southern kingdom with a longer existence because the kings of the southern kingdom were descendants of King David, who was a man after God's own heart. Kings come and go. The kings of the north served their time for 244 years. And then the last king of the north, Hosea, was defeated by the Assyrians and Israel's people were marched into exile. This was after the northern kingdom had a series of 20 kings. The kings of the south served their time for 394 years. And then the last king of the south was defeated and Judea's people were marched into exile in Babylon. This was after the southern kingdom had a series of 20 kings. The northern kingdom lasts 244 years and seven months and seven days. The southern kingdom lasted 394 years. Both kingdoms together had a total of 40 kings. Kings come and go, but God always had a prophet in each kingdom, whether the king was a good king or a bad king. When Judea was exiled to Babylon, God had his prophet Daniel go with them, even though at the time Daniel was too young to know he was a prophet. The king thought that all the riches and apparent glory came about by his own effort alone. A year before his ordeal, the king had a dream about what was going to happen. Daniel the prophet revealed to Nebuchadnezzar that what was going to happen if the king didn't repent of his pride. Twelve months later, the king had forgotten the warning and had not repented. God taught him a lesson by putting him out to pasture for seven years. God, in his mercy, gave a judgment with limited consequences so that the king could come to his senses after losing his senses and begin to see that God is the one who decides who is glorified on the earth and how much. The king glorified the one true God after that. And God gave the king the glory he had before for God's purposes. God didn't do it for the king's enjoyment. He did it for the role he wanted the, long, 
the king to play in God's greater story. We can compare this with King Saul. God gave him the kingdom for Saul to serve God as the king. Saul served himself, so God took his kingdom back and gave it to David. David served God, though imperfectly. He wavered, but he always came back to God. Solomon was the next king who started well, but didn't end well. After Solomon, the kingdom was divided. The northern kingdom and the southern kingdom each had 20 kings over time. But the southern kingdom lasted 150 years longer than the northern kingdom. So each of the 20 kings in the northern kingdom, on average, had shorter tenure than the 20 kings in the southern kingdom. They were serving themselves instead of serving God. So God took them out and replaced them giving another king an opportunity to serve God. When it was time, God turned the northern kingdom over to foreign kings, and 150 years later, God turned the southern kingdom over to foreign kings. Then foreign kings like Nebuchadnezzar took charge, but not by their own power. They didn't know it, but the one true God put them in the right place at the right time so they could take care of or chastise God's people on a temporary basis. God was preparing his people for the next step in their role in history. It was God's will that his son be born into a Jewish family in the tribe of Judah in a culture that, at least nominally, served the one true God. When God's people were under the oppression of a foreign ruler, that is when they turned to God for deliverance. That is when they knew they needed a Messiah. When Israel was under Roman rule, they were united in their disdain for foreign rulers, and the stage was set for the coming of the Messiah. They didn't understand the nature of their deliverer, sent by God to bring them closer to God. They wanted a Messiah, but they wanted one that fit their definition of what a Messiah should be. Jesus told them who he was. He let them know that his, his coming was prophesied. He showed them God's love for them. He demonstrated God's love by performing miracles, healing people, and raising people from the dead. He did things that only God could do. He told them all they had to do was accept him as their Messiah, their Lord and Savior. He didn't fit their definition of Lord and Savior. They rejected him and had him killed. He didn't stay dead after all and before all. He was and is the Son of God. Today it is now our turn to decide, and it is up to us to tell others about Jesus, the King of Kings. If his followers in that day had decided to keep it private, maintain the status quo, avoid possibly offending others by their existence as followers of Jesus, if they had decided that, then we wouldn't even know about Jesus. 2,000 years later, we do know about Jesus. Our world has been changed in many ways by the followers of Jesus.
If we doubt that, all we have to do is look not too far afield and see what the world is like for those who reject Jesus as Lord. We need to look at why we are here. Do we serve the King of Kings or do we just serve ourselves? We talked about Daniel and how he interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's dream about God's judgment of Nebuchadnezzar's pride. Before that, God delivered Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fiery furnace. As a result, Nebuchadnezzar praised the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He decreed that no one in the kingdom was to say anything offensive about the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But the king did not declare that the God of the Hebrews was the one true God. After God put Nebuchadnezzar out to pasture for seven years, then he praised God as the Most High, the King of the heavens, and said, There is no one who can defeat him. Nebuchadnezzar was now a true believer in the one true God. Then we learn about Daniel's interactions with a king named Darius. We might ask, where is King Nebuchadnezzar? Daniel hasn't moved, but a lot has happened since King Nebuchadnezzar left the scene. If we look at chapter 5, we see the story about King Belshazzar, but the book of Daniel doesn't tell us what happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. The commentary in my Bible says Nebuchadnezzar was only a prince when Babylon invaded Jerusalem in 605 B.C., Soon after, his father died and he became king. He ruled Babylon for 43 years. God gave this pagan king many years because the king recognized the one true God. Daniel was a youth when he was taken into captivity, maybe a teenager. So he was close to 60 years old when Nebuchadnezzar died. Nebuchadnezzar was <clears throat> succeeded by his son, Amel Marduk, also known as Evil Marduk, in the 52nd chapter of Jeremiah. Now, Evil Marduk was killed two years later by his brother-in-law named Nergal Sharezer, who then became the new king. And that king died four years later and was succeeded by his son Lahashi Marduk, Lahashi Marduk was assassinated that same year by a group, including a man named Nabonidus, who was the king for the next 17 years. Nabonidus retired to Arabia, and Belshazzar became the new king. We meet him in Daniel chapter 5, and all, in all these years, Daniel was still in the background. Nobody messed with Daniel, on the other hand. The kings didn't look to him for wisdom. If they had, they might have lasted longer. Belshazzar was the king who saw God's handwriting on the wall on the night before his kingdom was taken by the Persian king Darius. Belshazzar refers to Nebuchadnezzar as his father. It may be that Nebuchadnezzar 
The one who retired to Arabia was his father-in-law, but is called his father by sources other than the Bible. Belshazzar was having a long drunken party for 1,000 of his best friends. They took drinking vessels from the treasures Babylon had stolen from the temple in Jerusalem and were drinking from those treasures and drinking a toast to their false gods. God wrote a message on the wall for all to see, but no one in that party of a thousand revelers could read the message. I don't know what language it was written in, but the king was afraid of what it might say. Must have had a guilty conscience. The king called in his magicians and wise men to see if they could read and interpret the message of the handwriting on the wall. They were impressed, but they didn't have a clue. The king was shaken in his boots. He was afraid of some judgment, and he didn't know what the judgment was. Finally, his mother came to the rescue. The queen mother told him that there was a man in the kingdom named Daniel, in whom dwelt the spirit from the holy gods. She said, your father, the king, promoted Daniel to be the head wise man. He is able to interpret dreams and solve problems. Daniel was called in to read the message. The king told him that if he could tell him what the message said, the king would give him a gold necklace and a purple robe, and Daniel would be the third in command of the whole kingdom. Daniel told him to keep his gold and give it promotion to someone else. Daniel told the king that his father had been a great king who got proud. God had disciplined him, putting him out to pasture so that he grazed with the cattle for seven years. Then God brought him to his senses, and he humbled himself before God, and God restored Nebuchadnezzar to his former glory, and in, in all, King Nebuchadnezzar ruled Babylon for 42 years. Daniel told Belshazzar that he, had, oh, he already knew all this. Even so, Belshazzar did not humble himself before God. Daniel then read the handwriting on the wall and interpreted for the king. It said the kingdom was numbered and was coming to an end. The king was weighed and found wanting. The kingdom would be divided and given to someone else. That night, Belshazzar was killed and King Darius moved in and took over. And this is where we start with chapter 6. King Darius of the Medes and the Persians took Babylon from Belshazzar. King Darius appointed 120 satraps to be in charge of different parts of the kingdom and three commissioners to be in charge of them. Daniel was one of those three. Over time, King Darius noticed that Daniel was doing an extraordinary job and planned to put Daniel in charge of the whole kingdom. The other commissioners and the satraps working for them were greatly disturbed by this turn of events. They would now be accountable to Daniel. They wanted their own power. The only way out was to have Daniel impeached. They looked for evidence of corruption in Daniel and couldn't find any. They could find nothing to accuse him of. He was a man of character and devoted to his God. They finally decided to create a new law that contradicted Daniel's lifestyle. 
They knew Daniel would continue to do what he had always done and would therefore be in noncompliance with the new law. They needed a law that would cause Daniel to commit a capital offense. That would put Daniel out of the way so they could be enriched by their own deep state bureaucracy. They approached King Darius as if on official business. They appealed to the king's vanity. They said it would be against the law, should be against the law for anyone to pray to anyone but the king. He signed the law. Daniel was an old man by this time. The reason he had prospered in all these years was because he served God. He prayed to the king who was above all of the kings. In his time, Daniel had seen kings come and go. He saw the king of Judea be conquered by the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. When that king died, Daniel saw four other kings come and go before the throne was given to Belshazzar, the son of Nebuchadnezzar. He didn't last long at all, and God took the kingdom from him and gave it to King Darius. Daniel was God's servant through all these transfers of power, and he would continue to be God's man, even if it got him killed. No conniving bureaucrat was going to shake Daniel's faith and service to the one true God. God had brought him this far, and God would bring him home. Daniel continued to pray to God daily from his open window three times a day. Daniel was found guilty of praying to God. The king felt badly about that because he liked Daniel. But when Daniel's enemies wrote the law against praying to anyone but the king, the king signed it. He didn't know he was signing Daniel's death sentence. Daniel was thrown into the lion's den to die, but he didn't die. God closed the mouth of the lions, and Daniel was taken out of there the next morning without a scratch. The king was glad. He was mad at the men who tricked him into putting Daniel's life in danger. Verse 24 tells us, King Darius took the evil men who wrote the law against Daniel and their wives and children and threw them all into the lion's den. The lions ate them all. Seemed rather harsh to kill the wives and children, but that's what happened. Daniel witnessed to King Darius Darius by serving God, even in the lion's den. God shut the lion's mouth and Daniel was unharmed. Daniel had faith, but there was no guarantee that God would deliver him from the lions when he decided to pray, as he always had. But God had brought him this far. It would have been foolish for Daniel to turn his back on God in his old age in hopes of living a few more years on this earth. Daniel was ready to meet God, even if he had to spend his last minutes on earth being eaten by lions. But God wasn't finished with Daniel. The lions would have to wait a little while for their suffering.